This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to us. We've got you for an hour of science now. And in the studio with me is Dr. Jen. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good How to see you. good is the sunshine? I know, but the studio is like a fridge. Yeah, we're in big, thick jumpers. Well, some, <laughs> some of us are. Some jumpers. <laughs> yeah, no, there's something going on with the system in here. It's, uh, you know, we've all, we're all snuggled up around one microphone, with the exception of Chris KP, who's in the studio, and we've given him his own microphone. Well, he smells too bad. We can't sit next to him. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Uh, <laughs> I'm warming up the room for you. Yes. Oh, please. I'm going to rub myself all over the studio. Dr. Ewan's here as well. How are you, buddy? I'm good, mate. How are you? Yeah. And you're sporting, you two guys are sporting T-shirts. I'm all rugged up. You're just yeah. so manly. Yeah. I just, it's sad. I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> well, Correct. It's anyway. all right, Shane. I'm not manly. No, indeed. And neither am I, it would seem, because uh, I'm cold. Mm. Bloody cold. Yeah, anyway, uh, there we have it. So we are coming into spring. It's mm. starting. Every now and then you get a warm day, and just when you relax, oh, shit, <laughs> the weather comes in. So I think it'll be cold again tonight. Now, we are going to run through some news, then we have a couple of guests, and then later in the show, Dr. Ewan's got something for us. He won't tell us what it is, but I'm sure it will be worth listening to. Dr. Jim, we'll start with you. <clears throat> well, I was sparing a thought for all the students around at the moment, starting to get panicky about their exams. So whether you're at oh, uni yeah. or school, you know, there's a lot of exams coming, and a big part of exams, sadly, is a whole lot of rote learning, which probably everyone in this room thinks is a waste of time, having to rote learn, but the fact is... Well, no, for some people... <laughs> Like, for me, rote learning worked well. No, so but it's it just sad that are. we're still testing people on having to rote learn things. But anyway, mm. that's got nothing to do with my new story. I wasn't talking about rote learning, oh, right. but just the idea that yeah. you know, having to commit things to memory, and there's the, everyone has a sense that if you want to commit things to your memory, you have to get enough sleep. Yeah? Yeah, correct. So we have this idea that sleep is an important part of forming memories. But we've never really been able to watch that closely because the best way to look at what's going on inside somebody's brain is to put them inside an fMRI machine. Yeah. And if you've ever been near one of these (laughs) machines... Yeah. Something like crystal window. You do... No, that's pretty good, actually. Is that okay? Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's very loud. So we're talking functional magnetic resonance, and yeah, it's bloody loud. So that presents you with a conundrum. If you'd like to see what's going on inside someone's brain, and the way to do that is with one of these machines, and these machines are bloody loud, how do you do it? You can't, you can't anaesthetise them because then their brain activity is different. Exactly, yeah, yeah. and they're also claustrophobic. It's freaky to be inside one. Yeah, oh, yeah. 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 But happily, a study came out this week where they found 13 magical, wonderful people who managed to fall asleep inside one of these machines. And before they fell asleep, they taught these people a particular sequence of pressing five keys that took a bit of memorising to get mm. right. So kind of imagine somebody learning a sequence on a piano of yep. five notes yep. and having to do it in a particular order. Like in Close Encounters. Exactly. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. <laughs> that was really good. That was my skill. <laughs> anyway, yep. so the people were in the machine and they had to play this sequence while they were still awake and they recorded exactly what was going on in the brain and they observed this very particular brain pattern in the cortex, so kind of the outer region of the brain. And then these people managed to fall asleep and they watched exactly the same pattern of brain activity going on in the cortex in the early stages of sleep. But a couple of hours in, once these people entered um, REM sleep, they saw this pattern of brain activity move from the outer cortex of the brain to a region right in deep in the brain called the 
Putemen or Putemen, I don't know how you pronounce mm. it, but the same pattern. So they actually observed this trace. Memory formation. Yeah, memory yeah. formation wow. moving from the start of sleep into this REM phase of sleep and the pattern moving. So we've actually seen stuff. it happen, how memories are forming. So That's the cool. message for all the students out there desperately studying is you've got to have this period of uninterrupted REM sleep, we think, for this activity to move, you know, this memory yeah. to move into the part, part of the brain where it's going to stick. And bravo to those people who can sleep in the fMRI machine. Seriously. I, mean, I actually think my dad could do that because I've sat him down to watch Aliens, you know, James Cameron's version, <laughs> like about 10 times and he, he makes it about 7 minutes in <laughs> and no. he always nods off. So he might, you know, he could be a contender for that. Yeah. Well, I'm just wondering if that's how they're going to select who goes to Mars. If they can sleep. Well, if you can sleep in a really confined space, right? It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can them all in. Yeah, yeah, I can't sleep. Off you go. But, but why, why use an fMRI? You could just use a coffin. It's true. I mean, basically true. the same thing. Well, you know. Which could be convenient. Uh, yeah. you know, if you, it's if more you, exciting. If you take experimental space I, exploration. I had, to get, <laughs> I had to get one of those scans on my on my hand about two years or two or three years ago. And I remember they, they laid me down and put my hands to the next to my face and then drove me in head first. <laughs> and I was in there for a minute and, and I was like, Hang on. And like, and like I started getting a sore shoulder. It was just yeah. an awkward position. And so I'm squeezing a little thing. You know, you get a little squeezer and you squeeze it and they, they come in. What's wrong? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, those I can't lie here like this for 20 minutes. I'm getting a sore shoulder. And so I said, how about this? How about they just shove my arm yeah. in? Yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. Ah. <laughs> I was like, what? Keep so, it simple. Yeah, oh, keep it simple, people. Indeed. So, well, that's, that's cool. So it's that's very cool. exciting to have actually visualised. Yeah, to visualized. watch the memory form. Yeah. Yeah. Super It'd be cool. disturbing if you were like, well, probably me and Chris, where they put you in there and it just wouldn't form. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing happens. <laughs> and it'd it start in the front of the brain and then just halfway through the test and just vanish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm looking at learning yeah. stuff. No. But it, do, it, it does make you think if, you, if you're a student studying stuff now, don't do the, you know, knock off three Red Bulls and stay awake and cram. You're yeah, because no. you've got to sleep. Yeah, go yeah. to sleep. So that it, it, it forms into the deeper Also, layer. it feels nicer. Yeah. <laughs> How scientific of you. Sleep, it feels uh, it nice. Feels <laughs> Dr. Ewan. Dr. Shane, I'm going to talk about, talk about navigation. So how many people here have been lost in the bush? I'm guessing some of us. Yeah, I've been lost. Yeah, it's yeah, not a very yeah. nice experience. Yeah. You, you, and I consider you, myself a pretty good navigator, and I've still been lost. Not of just course you do. Either, for the record. Yeah. Hey? Uh, shopping centres. Yeah, uh, not in shopping centres, you know, car Chris, parks. Chris got lost in his own house. I have done. I get lost <laughs> in shopping centres. Yeah. You come out of a shop and you can't remember whether you came from left or right. Uh, I like breadcrumbs, but the cleaners keep ruining it for me. <laughs> the problem I have is if I enter if I enter a large room like a cinema or something, and then I leave out of a different exit, yes. and it follows one of those little paths where you go around, then you end up coming out in the laneway. Yeah, I'm like I have no idea where I am now. So then you, IKEA, IKEA all over. So well, then you really that's by design, though. <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah, totally. Yes. Yeah, sooner or later, I'll buy something, and it might just be food. But <laughs> we'll take because they've been there for so long. <laughs> Now we've uncovered it. Hang on. Dr. Ewan's got so, some science. I've got some science to talk about. Yes. So given our failings, you'll appreciate what bees can do. So bees are amazing, mm. as we know, for so yep. many different reasons. And there's the classic phrase, of course, taking a bee line. And this research, which is in current biology, was looking at exactly that. So bees, mm. as we know, when they leave the hive, they go off foraging, looking for flowers to, you know, do their thing. But then when they come home, they go on a straight line. And again, think about, you know, mm. if you're a human, if you go for a bushwalk, you know, you're looking at visual cues and you're yep. remembering things. Yep. But if someone said to you, okay, now turn around and get home go in a straight, straight line, 
Yeah. Not Ouch. many people will be able to do that without getting lost, I'm guessing. And bees don't go out in the straight line. No, I know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're they're yeah. wandering all over the place, right? Mm. So this research has been looking at exactly how they do that. And so, and bear in mind that bee has a brain basically smaller than a, a grain of rice. So a very yeah. small brain. And this research, essentially what they did was they monitored bee movement by hooking up electrodes and looking at all the neurons inside the brain, and kind of in, in, um, inside what's called the central complex, essentially, which is a just spaghetti mess of neurons. But what they worked out was that these neurons can essentially sense direction and speed, and so you can basically sort of take these measurements as they're moving along. Mm. And they did some virtual reality work on the bees as well, so they showed them, you know, a bee Sorry, sort of just, moving around. Sorry, you see that? <laughs> I've just got these images <laughs> of these little incredible. VR goggles. Imagine a little bee with electrodes hooked up and they're looking at virtual reality. This yeah, is, cool. This is I, want, amazing. I want those goggles. This is a, so, so amazing it, science. Is the virtual reality being sent to them via the electrodes? No, I think they're seeing a screen oh, okay. and then they're measuring what's happening in the brain. Because I'm thinking... I'm just <laughs> thinking it's like... They are small goggles, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's some very cool tech. Bees have got kind of crazy eyes too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then they, they measured all what was essentially happening in their brain and then they've created a, a model of this, uh, a reconstruction essentially. And what they've shown is that bees can essentially yeah, m- measure direction and speed as they're moving out mm. and then through some incredible B algorithm, which we still don't really understand, they can then go, okay, well, based on all these things we've been measuring along the way, yeah. I can then fly straight home. And so this is um, amazing when you think about it. And it's, it's orienteering at, at the nth degree. It's incredible when you think about all the calculations that are going yeah. on there, you know, in the background. So, so if, that's, if that's the case, what would happen if the bee goes out? So it's, yeah. it's now got a, a, a map, essentially, or, yeah. or, or a series of triggers for a map in its, in its head. Um, what happens if the wind changes really dramatically on the way back? So now it's flying into a different wind. It's, got, it's going to be slower, if you like. That's a great question. So presumably it would have to adjust its calculation somehow. So there's, there's, there's actually, you know, there are, there are potential influence factors. Oh, absolutely. But which so, is but just so, there's a, so it's, in, it's interesting here because this is where you get into true navigation questions yeah. because, in a sense, all the different directional changes that made on the way are completely irrelevant. All it needs is a bearing. Yeah. yeah, like the yes. only thing it needs is direction. It yeah. needs nothing else. It doesn't yeah. need to worry about speed, time, distance. Yeah. It just needs to know direction. So the question is, is it you know is it collecting information as it goes, or does it just turn around and go, okay, the sun's twenty degrees to my right, I need to go ten degrees to the left. Bang, done. Yeah, because that's a, that's a simple calculation. Yeah, mm-hmm. which it might be capable of doing if it can work I'm out the. I'm pretty bearing. sure because I saw this study as well. I'm pretty sure this study was on um, nocturnal bees for that reason. Oh, so wow. they couldn't use the sun. Stars. Yeah. I mean yeah. stars. Yeah. yeah I don't and of know. course, there's lots of other organisms that <laughs> likewise have these incredible <laughs> yeah, navigation yeah. abilities that just make us look quite inferior. I mean, it's not to down, I, I don't mean to downplay it. I think it's exceptional, but it might be that. You know, when we look for answers to this, yep. sometimes mm-hmm. they, they, they look too complicated yeah. and sometimes it's actually quite simple. As long as you know yeah. the bearing, you're, you're okay. Yeah. How they work that out yeah. as a big brain. Yeah. If, oh. if, if it's nighttime or if it's cloudy or yeah. something's obscured in the yeah. environment, you can't use that cue anymore, then you mm. need something else that you can mm. actually you rely mm. upon. And, so, yeah. um, and, of course, they're talking about the applications for things like you know, autonomous vehicles and so forth well, that can then actually navigate themselves using similar ideas. Right? I'm, yeah. wondering, I'm wondering complex, if... Um, Wondering if Dr. Jen can get a seeing IB to get through IKEA. <laughs> <laughs> we all need one of those. Send it through first. <laughs> but it won't help you because you can't just walk in a straight line to the exit. You've got to follow the path. Oh, but there are, there are other true? paths. And there they're, is secret, they're, they're secret, shortcuts. though. They're secret. I don't know if a bee would be other than navigators. Just wear a yellow t-shirt. They'll assume your staff. <laughs> as long as the bee doesn't get distracted by the $1 hot dog at the end. <laughs> <Yeah. but. laughs> 
Can you imagine I've, how big I've a hot dog? I've never made it to the end. It's one dollar hot dog. Wow, there is. They're, oh, they're infamous. I thought it was meatballs. That were and I think it's both, and it's right. worth nearly every cent. <laughs> we, 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 we need to we need to balance what could be perceived as endorsement. Yeah. <laughs> you love you love the one dollar hot dog. I won't go near the bloody place because <laughs> I'm one of those. I'm like a bee in out. I know what I want. Yeah, I'm, yeah. In, I'm in and out. I don't. I don't. I don't browse. Yeah. I can't stand it. No, I'm not a fan yeah. either. Yeah, so um, I should uh, just quickly add to your story uh, some of the data that came out this week on um, uh, looking at traces of pesticides that have been found. There's been this big study of honey across the world, and they've found that um, something in excess of 75% of honeys have traces of pesticides. And these, of course, cause problems with the bee brain and their ability yep. to navigate, which is really uh, a big issue. And, and in fact, in 34%, so remember those numbers, it's in 75% of bee be honey or in, in honey it's all be honey um and 34 percent of the honey samples they collected actually had them at levels that uh they know to be problematic for for bees so that's that's a huge number you know and that's massive and look i mean you only have to see those those pictures of in the u.s of those big trucks cutting bees around mm. to know that they're not going to be happy but anyway i like how they did the study apparently they just put out on their social networks anyone yeah. who's got access to honey anywhere you yeah, live in the world can you send it to us please yeah that's right yeah that's how great. cool is that so yeah so crowdsourcing anyway, what can you do chris Gappy? how are you what do you got? Um, I'm good. <laughs> good. Still good. Did I catch you in the middle of something? Uh, no, 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 no. I, I'm very good. I um, I, I wanted to um, I want to talk about a story that uh, a study that is interesting in the way it was done. Um, it's also interesting in what it found, but it's interesting in the way it was done. So if you know, we know that so, so the planet's getting warmer, and every um, physical environment, if you like, is being affected by that one way or the other, whether it's the ocean warming up or you know whatever else. Hmm. Or, surfaces of, of leaves on trees being warmer all of those things are, are, are different um and so a bunch of scientists wanted to do a study of what would happen in a, in a uh, to in particular to do with invertebrates living in a freshwater stream mm, if the okay. water heated up yep. now conveniently and i don't know whether which came first whether it was the idea or the situation but conveniently they ended up studying a warm stream and a cold stream which happened to be adjacent to each other on a volcano in Iceland. Oh, cool. Work yep. with me here. So you've got hot yep. water streams and cold water streams. Yep. So what they said is, okay, if we've got a hot water stream and a cold water stream, then we can get the hot... We, if we can make the cold water stream warm, then we can see what effect raising temperatures would be. Hmm. But, of course, you know, the easy way to do this, and some would say the um, scientifically more robust way, would be to mimic the stream in a, you know, in a, in a, in a laboratory sense where you go, okay, well, this is... The speed of the water, the amount of water, the back, the 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 biomass that's in there currently, and then we crank the temperature up on it, which is not what they did. Instead of doing that, they constructed this what I suspect is quite elegant um, <laughs> device, whereby the water they dammed up part of the stream. That water was then diverted through a pipe into the warm stream, so the waters weren't mixing, but it was warming up, and then they put it back into the cold stream again, which was now at that point downstream. No, in fact, they even make the point of saying by gravity. Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> that is no longer a cold stream. It's now a warm stream. And then they studied what happened. Now, traditional, if you like, and well-established um, uh, ecological theory would tell you that what, what is likely to happen is that the amount of biomass will actually stay pretty similar, but the number of small, high metabolic rate things will reduce and the number of larger creatures with lower metabolic rates would increase. So you get bigger, slower things and less small, fast things <laughs> to really oversimplify it. Um, and what they found is exactly that. So yay for the theory. But what really made the difference was how that happened. 
what happened was organisms that were not actually in that stream oh, moved in. Moved in. Uh, yeah. and gone. Someone's got a jacuzzi. Yeah. And so they, they moved across <laughs> from other places and colonised, oh, which dear. is really interesting because it tells you that, yeah, this is, this is exactly what you would expect to happen in, in a climate change scenario, that everyone mm. goes, okay, what do I need? What's threatening me? What's good? Mm. And they move. Oh, yeah. But that wouldn't have happened if they'd done it in a laboratory. Precisely. So now there's some messed up stream somewhere it's, in Iceland. And therein lies my question. Therein lies why it's interesting that they've done something that's, that, that gave them data they would not have got in a more controlled environment, but they have kind of screwed around yeah. with a natural environment. Let's test how effed up the environment would be <laughs> if this happened by effing up the environment. Well, yeah. I mean, it is, to be hmm. fair, it is only one stream in one place, I'm and the whole planet's sort of at risk, so, you know, I don't know. Yeah. So the most important get, question, yeah. Chris, is you said it's a jacuzzi. Were there bubbles? Uh, well, given, given that... Um, <laughs> Did the, they mimic, you know? Yeah, bubbles. given that one of the species that moved in was a snail, I suspect they're not agitating the water that much, sadly. tub. You kind of need to know oh if, they, if they cooled it down again, did all those, all those new critters go... Holy shit, it's freezing. Let's go back to the other one. <laughs> I'm just thinking it actually is a time-travelling hot tub. What happens yeah. in the future if we warm things up? <laughs> this is what happens in oh, the future. Dear. That's <laughs> shocking. All right, folks, we're going to take a break for some music and then we'll be on the phone in just a moment to um, someone uh, pretty interesting, actually, talking about uh, climate change. We'll be talking about the Antarctic weather and the things going on down there. So hang in there. You're listening to Triple R. It's Einstein at GoGo. Triple R, not for everyone. For anyone. Uh, you are listening to Triple R, folks, and we're back. Uh, now, the person we were going to get on the phone is not there. So, uh, luckily for us, we have another amazing guest who's been hanging around the studio and was going to have to wait another 15 minutes, but now she doesn't, which is cool. Woohoo! Welcome, Associate <laughs> Professor Kate Hoy, who is from the Monash Alfred Psychiatric Research Centre and Monash University. Been in the studio before. Kate, welcome back. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Now, you're working in the area of Alzheimer's disease, and we've, we've had a few guests on lately about this because it's uh, dementia, or it was Dementia Awareness Month of September. Is that right? I yes, think? that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, did you guys do anything special for the month? Um, we did a bit of media. So yep. um, we spoke on a couple of radio shows talking about um, the trials, and Monash did a uh, video piece um, just increasing awareness about dementia mm. and its impact. And so um, I think that went out last week uh, yeah. to, to various organisations. Okay. Yeah. When, when we talk about dementia, I mean, it's kind of it, it's kind of like the word cancer. You know, it covers a range of things. I mean, give us a bit of a flavour of what what sits under dementia, like from your perspective, because you're obviously in the space. Yeah, absolutely. So dementia is a really broad term that that refers to diseases that have a progressive decline in cognition, cognition mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and behaviour. So there are diseases like Alzheimer's. Yep. Um, there are dementias that are associated with diseases like Parkinson's disease. Uh, there's a dementia called Lewy body's dementia, um, right. which, is, which can be part of Parkinson's, um, as well as uh, frontotemporal dementia, where a different part of the brain is affected than in Alzheimer's, for example. And you get quite a different presentation um, from that. So, so there are a wide variety of dementias. Yeah. And what about things like ALS? I mean, do you end up with dementia with that, or is that, every, that the rest of the body affected first? Yeah, I believe I believe so. So um, I haven't done a lot of work in ALS, but there, I believe as the degrees disease progresses, you do mm. get effects on cognition and yeah, right, absolutely. Right. And, and in terms of the sort of the range of time over which these diseases, you know, initiate and then become symptomatic, 
Mm. I mean, Alzheimer's seems to be the one that, you know, we used to think you just got it when you were really, you know, in your 70s or 80s or yeah. whatever. But all of a sudden now people are talking about, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but like 25, 30-year kind of progression of the disease. Is Alzheimer's unique compared to other dementias in being so long-winded in that sense? Not necessarily. So they're, they're very variable and that's probably the biggest take-home message from that is that um, they're quite individually variable as well. Mm -hmm. So the same two people with the same illness will progress at different rates right. and over different periods of time. Mm -hmm. um, some of the dementias can be quite um, quite quick in their progression um, but, it, but it quite depends on, on the person and, and, and also the way in which it's um it develops the cause yeah. of the dementia i suppose when you when you think about that it's it's not that surprising i mean someone will get osteoporosis at, at one age and other, others won't and, yeah. and that will progress very quickly for some people and for i mean so there's no difference really is there or is there something specific about the brain that sort of makes it different to those scenarios no absolutely not um everyone's brain is very different and everyone's um, brain activity is incredibly different and so when we have um, an illness or even an insult a traumatic brain injury the effects that you'll actually have are very variable did you hear a news story earlier uh, Jen did about people sleeping in MRI? Do you, you find that surprising? People no, sleep? <laughs> I don't. I, only because I personally find it surprising because I could never sleep yeah, yeah. Um, in an MRI. Um, but we have had um, quite a few projects where we've done um, MRI scans and, yeah, we have patients who, who fall asleep in Not them. Not so, Wow. Yeah, very jealous of that. I, I can't. <laughs> Way too I, personally, I'd like to fall asleep before they roll you in. You know, like if, you know, yeah. stay asleep and then just come out, wake up and go, oh, what happened? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They can be quite claustrophobic, I yeah, find. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all, I think every, everyone, um, anyone who doesn't feel a little bit of claustrophobia in, I'm suspicious of. Um, <laughs> anyway, now, <laughs> is, that, is that wrong to say that? Um, you already it's said weird. it. Yeah, it's weird. Too late now, mate. Yeah. Jesus, it's weird. What's like, you know, you put someone in a coffin and shut the lid and say, you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. This is great. It's roomy. <laughs> no, no. It's a, it's a very small space. Um, Caves are right. Anyway, I also don't like spiders. Yeah. Um, Anyway, now you're you're working specifically in Alzheimer's as yes. a condition. I mean, just give us a bit of a rundown on how big this is as a problem in Australia and worldwide, because yeah. I, I understand it's, uh, you know pretty big. Absolutely. So there are currently over four hundred thousand people diagnosed with with um, dementia in Australia, right. and Alzheimer's is the um, most common form of dementia. It's upwards mm -hmm. of all of seventy percent of all dementias okay. is Alzheimer's, um, and the projections are that if unless there are significant medical breakthroughs, it will be over 1.1 million by 2056 um, in Australia alone. Uh, so it is a large and growing problem at the moment. Yeah. I, I heard some stats r recently, and maybe you can be more specific about this than I can, but if you, if you look at the impact of Alzheimer's in terms of its economic impact, mm. it's, and you collect all of that for the whole world, it's like in the top 20 largest economic powers in the world. Absolutely. Or like 15th or something. Like, you know, so you, you go down the list of how big countries are economically and you put Alzheimer's in as a country mm. and it's like 12 or something. It's, you know, it's huge, Absolutely. huge impact. Yeah, Absolutely. it's extraordinary. So the projection in Australia in, in 2056 is um, that if that number is 1.1 million or mm -hmm. just above, the cost um, would be $38 billion wow. um, just, just in Australia. Wow. So the number's increasing, but obviously the population size of Australia is increasing. So I guess my question is, 
how much is the prevalence of itself actually increasing? So, and and what do we know about what's triggering this? So, are there other environmental factors? I guess you know, I always think about what's the cause. You know, what's the underlying reason why people are getting you know experiencing dementia and so forth? So, what do we know about that? So, the underlying cause, unfortunately, we don't know um, definitively what the underlying cause of dementia is. Um, with Alzheimer's, there is a very small percentage that are genetic, and we're talking less than one percent. And they tend to be earlier onset, um, earlier onset disorders. The biggest risk factor for um, Alzheimer's far and away is ageing. So having said that, though, it is not a um, definite consequence of ageing. There are other risk factors, um, modifiable risk factors like cardiovascular um, disease and there are also social and um, economic risk factors. But fundamentally, we don't really know what causes it. And, and the thought around the increasing rate of um, rate of Alzheimer's is the fact that we are an ageing population. So there are, I think there was something like 244 cases of Alzheimer's are diagnosed every day um, in Australia and they're Mm. predicting that that's going to be 600 a day um, by 2050. It's one of those conditions that you know, the person gets it, but the family and the friend, you know, it's quite an, ex- it's quite, it has an extensive sort of range, if you will, in terms of its impact compared to many conditions. Absolutely. So mm. with our trial, um, we see the patients come in and the patients will always come in with their carer. Mm. And mm. it really does drive home the impact of, of this illness through yeah. through the entire family. Yeah. Now, one of the numbers you just gave out there that I, I just want to focus on, because I think it's disproportionate to the level of fear in the community, is 1% genetically ending up with Alzheimer's because I, I, I know one lady whose mother had Alzheimer's and she's you know deathly feared by the idea that she will get it but one percent is not the sort of number that's rattling around in her head it's more like I will get it because you know this this seems to be quite uh, yeah. and, you know, misuse of the, the information out there. Yeah, so just to clarify that, the, the less than 1% is the definite cause. So, right. so that if you have this um, genetic um, mutation or, or this gene, you will get Alzheimer's. Right, right, okay. There yeah. are also genetic risk factors yep. um, that will increase your risk. Sure. Um, yeah. so, so family history is certainly, certainly yeah, um, one. That's interesting. So where is the, where's the most important place to, to apply research? Do we look at diagnostics? Do we look at prevention? Do we look at treatment? Um, do we look at, at modelling? It's a really good question. I think that's a really great question um, because all of those things are really needed. I think prevention, absolutely. The, if we can prevent people from developing the illness, that's great. But at the same time, we've got over 400,000 people with Alzheimer's right now mm. and those people need mm. need something mm. as well. Yeah. Um, I think that really prevention, um, treatment for people who have the disorder and also um, help for consumers, help for carers, um, things that developing ways in which to make it easier for people to live with this illness in their families. Um, Mm. Because as I said, prevention is fantastic. And if we can prevent everyone getting Alzheimer's, that's great. Um, But that's not the case now. And Mm. it's not likely to be the case for a while. Now let's talk about your work. Transcranial magnetic stimulation. It just sounds amazing. (laughs) It sounds like you, it it sounds a bit scary, but um, what, what magnetic, uh, I'm glad it's magnetic and not electric. Um, yep. That would sound even scarier, but magnetic. <laughs> we do stimula- both. You do both. We so, do both. Sounds um, like a slash metal album, so, I reckon. So talk us through, first of all, what is this technique? I mean, what, what physically are you doing to the, the brain, the body um, with yep. this technique? So um, transcranial magnetic stimulation is a, a form of non-invasive brain stimulation. So what we 
do is we hold a coil above the patient's um, head or, or on mm-hmm. the patient's head where we want to stimulate. Yep. It's like a figure of eight handheld coil. Mm-hmm. And a magnetic pulse um, emanates from that and passes very freely into the brain and mm-hmm. induces an electrical current. Okay. That electrical current causes brain cells to fire. And so we can change activity in that area of the brain. So, for example, if we stimulate over the motor cortex, we actually see the hand jump because we're mm. making those brain cells fire. So are, the, are, these, are these cells that are, are not firing well because of the amyloid or other build-ups that are you know, part of the Alzheimer's sort of game? Is that, yeah, is that absolutely. The so the theory that we're going with for the Alzheimer's is that um, absolutely. So a build-up of amyloid has been known to impair the way um, neurons talk to each other. Mm. Mm. Um, and neurons talking to each other really well is what allows us to basically do everything of our um, brain function. So TMS, when you apply it um, every day um, over a period of weeks, over time it can actually enhance connections in the brain and it it can make the neurons stronger. Um, And so So, that's what we're trying to do. So can I ask a question immediately there is, are you sort of fixing old connections or getting them to reinitiate or are you allowing the brain sort of stimulating it to grow new fresh ones because of this this external force i mean yep. do, do you know which which is happening um we no, we don't know 100 percent, but we mm. believe what we're doing is we're strengthening the connections that are there um and and there is a theory as well that we might actually be able to induce um new connections okay it, it with Alzheimer's, it is tricky because you are sort of reliant on the, the, the neurons that are remaining. Um, yep. And so we think what we're really doing is just um, taking advantage of those neurons and boosting their activity in a way that the illness is not allowing to happen. Now the physics guy is going to start asking questions. Just to be, <laughs> so I can change the field strength, I can change its direction, and I can change the frequency at which I'm, you know, how fast these yep. oscillations are occurring. Have you started measuring what these three parameters do, how how they play out, like which one matters? Is you know, I mean, what, what do you know at this point? So, look, TMS has been researched for probably about twenty years now, mm-hmm. and it's most been mostly research in depression um, and that's kind of where we've got most of our evidence. As the technology has sort of moved along and also neuroscience tools have moved along, we're starting to be able to look at those things. Um, We're probably still in the early days of really understanding it. Um, We are using a form of brain stimulation called theta burst stimulation, which is where we're altering the frequency and it's delivered in a patterned form. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're doing in the Alzheimer's trial. And that's thought to be a lot more effective because it more closely mimics what the brain, its natural firing activity. Yeah. So, Kate, my understanding is that Alzheimer's does present somewhat differently in different people in terms of the the actual symptoms in cognitive decline. So my question is, you mentioned, you know, um, having this coil above a particular part of the brain. Does that mean that the way you use this treatment is personalised to an individual and, and how their Alzheimer's is affecting them? That's a really good question um, and ultimately if if we're able to show that this is effective that is exactly what we would like to do. Um, we are stimu- In the current trial we're stimulating four regions of the brain in everybody um, and th- that's what's a little bit different 
between this trial and the ones that have been done previously. Um, so we stimulate the left and right frontal regions and the left and right parietal regions of the brain um, for a couple of reasons. They're the um, regions of the brain that we are not know are consistently involved in Alzheimer's, but they're also the regions of the brain that TMS can reach. Um, so it can't reach down deep into the brain, um, and so that's mm-hmm. that's what we're targeting. Kate, uh, people listening to this, you know, almost everyone is associated in some way or knows someone. With, you know, and, the, and the real question here is, you know, w- will my mother remember my name again? Or, I mean, whereabouts are you targeting with this trial is this about sort of halting the disease or is it about reversing potentially people who are a fair way down the track i mean where's it going um ideally we're we're looking to improve the cognitive symptoms in the person at the time so we're hoping that um that if this works then people will um be able to improve their memory their ability to hold information in their mind um and possibly slow the progression of the illness and that's kind of our blue sky hypothesis that Mm. we're hoping to do so we're following people up for a number of months um, after they've had the treatment so when's trial complete um it's been going for a year Mm -hmm. um and we'd like to get at least 100 patients in so we're probably going to be going for about another three years to to get that number yeah it's a big problem takes time it does kate thanks so much for coming in good luck with this trial i think um any you know it's such a devastating disease for for everyone involved not just the patients but the carers and and even you guys who see these people you know must be hard to watch so um good luck hope the trial's successful and this becomes a treatment that we can use to you know at least slow things down at the very least so Thanks again, and we'll talk to you in three years or when the trial's finished. We'll see how we go. <laughs> Happily. Thanks yep. very much. Associate Professor Kate Hoy is from Monash Alfred Psychiatric Research Centre and Monash University. We're going to take a break for some music and some important station announcements, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. Now, Dr. Ewan has uh, been working tirelessly all week. Um, <laughs> or just, uh, no. Generally. Some of the week I have. So, you, this morning? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got for us? Uh, I'm going to try and tie together the themes of aliens, and I'm not talking about ET or ALF, climate change, drug lords, cocaine hippos. Giant pythons and rewilding. So strap, this could go strap anywhere. Yourself in, strap yourself Finally, in. Finally, so. someone's addressing this. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's, it's a natural, it's a natural, you know, assembly of different <laughs> things. But uh, so there's been some really interesting papers that have come out recently, and they all kind of revolve around the idea of introduced species. So that's what I mean when I'm talking aliens. So species that are in parts of the world that are outside what we'd consider their native range. Okay, so think about, you know, feral horses as an example in Australia. Can I ask a question? You can ask plenty of questions. Um, (laughs) At at what point does a species cease being alien and we just say, oh, this thing just migrated over time? That is hotly debated constantly in ecology and conservation biology. People would talk about species being naturalised, as an example, right, so a species right. that's mm-hmm. part of the system now. Um, it may have been introduced at some point in the time, but yeah. it's, it's so embedded in the system now that it's part of it, and um, you know you essentially can't take it out. Or if you do, there's going to be other consequences. I mean, yeah. the dingo is a classic mm-hmm. example. Yeah, right? so the dingo arrived right. in Australia some, sometime, we think, within sort of three and a half, five thousand years ago. Right. right? Now, you could say, okay, so that's an introduced species. It was yeah. brought here by Asian right. seafarers, we think, not Aboriginal yep. people, but yep. Asian seafarers. Um, so it was introduced. Um, but it's now 
it, it is embedded in the Australian landscape. There's no question. So it, it interacts quite strongly with a whole range of other species. And, and presumably with something like the dingo, we're not just talking about a species somewhere in the food chain. We're talking about an apex yeah, predator. Mm, predator. And so... Uh, you know, there must be a choice at some stage where you say, okay, we're going to take this thing out. This should, you know, it hasn't been there long. Or, you know, yeah. those questions are yeah. hard. And, and it's particularly, I think, tricky when it's kind of the only thing that you have in that system. So right. we don't have any other type predators left. They're all yeah. gone. You know, so we used to have the thylacine, of course, on, mm. um, on the mainland. Mm, yeah. We had a, a mainland Tasmanian devil and so forth, and they're all gone. So yeah. the only thing that comes close to being or fulfilling that role is the dingo. And now. the wombat that was the size of a truck. Diprotodons. Yeah. So, so which ties in really nicely with the, one of the first studies I'll talk about which came out in ecography and they looked at megafauna so these are animals that are over 100 kilograms in weight so big mm -hmm. animals um, and they looked all around the world and 22 out of the 76 megafauna that fit that 100 kilogram category so 29 percent have introduced populations around the world okay and of those 22 11 of them 50 percent are threatened in their native range so this is where it gets really mm. kind of complex and controversial in the conservation world, right? Because on one hand, we're always arguing and we've got to get rid of invasive species and introduced mm. species mm. because they have all these impacts. But on the other hand, we want to conserve things because we're losing things left, right and centre off the planet. So you have these sort of bizarre situations mm. where you have things like, um, you know, camels as an example. There's 300,000 dromedaries in Australia, yeah. right? And it is the largest wild population of that species in the world. So in, in Middle East, they're essentially extinct in their mm. native range. Mm. So, yeah, you want so to... So what do you do? Do you get rid of 300,000 camels because they're kind of bad news in some ways or do you keep them because it's a conservation outcome? So... Is, is every... Uh, I mean, maybe this is the wrong question to ask, but is every species on the planet in some way an invasive species? Well, we did come from somewhere else. Yeah, so, did you, you know, know what I mean? Like came because from stars. So you know, <laughs> well, how far back do you want to go? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So just say yes. You're an ecologist. You can say yes, yeah. surely. But, but but even even other species. I mean, at some stage, you know, most species have branched off from others and you know sought um, nutrients and and yeah. what they needed, and they've moved towards those. So at some stage, everything kind of does that okay and way. i think it comes back to how you like how you value and how you sort of understand how species get from point a mm. to point b so some yeah. get there by themselves some get there by With us, us. Yep. um and so so this study looked at this and it's sort of i guess making this point that maybe we should sort of look beyond just saying well this species is introduced so it's bad get rid of mm. it mm. um and so forth now there's really interesting examples. So one of them is uh, hippos so imagine you know big hippos not the, the small ones but the, the big, big ones sex. from africa yeah, yeah, yeah. yep there is a population of those in Colombia, uh, which which uh, are traced back smoking. to which are traced back are to the lords? Colombian drug lord Pablo yeah. Escobar. Is that right? So when at the height of his in, you know fame or, or you know uh, infamy, infamy, thank you, he had a little basically a wildlife park, right? Oh, nice. And, and and when he was finally killed, that whole thing just went to rack and ruin. And well, not nice. And a small population of hippos is now 40 hippos, and some of them have now got into a adjoining river. Now, oh, wow. some people are saying, well, you know, this is interesting, and, and hippos do have really important ecological roles, but hippos are also incredibly dangerous <laughs> yeah, animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so people who use that river for their livelihoods are now at risk from hippos. And so it's, again, a dilemma where it's like, well, in, in their native range, hippos are actually not doing very well. You know, they're on the yeah. decline. And so you think, well, do we get rid of them because they're an invasive species and they might have these risks to humans, or do we keep them because in Africa, like a lot of other really large animals, unfortunately, they're just disappearing rapidly. Yeah, yeah. Or do we move the people over to the hippos' traditional habitat <laughs> where there aren't so many hippos now? Do you want, or, I'm or, helping. 
Or, or we grab the people who are shooting them as trophies and get them to do all the work required around the river where there's some danger nice. from the hippos. Very nice. You can't live till you fix what you ruined. Exactly. I quite like that. Yeah, and then, so there's wild donkeys in... And, um, mm. uh, in America that, you know, dig holes in these streams, really dry streams, and by doing that, they provide water for other animals, but they also create little sort of germination areas for seeds. So, incredibly mm. arid environment, but by them digging holes, they're providing a resource for others, and also they change the landscape. So, so again, I, I, I was just going to say, I have no idea why, but the, the idea of a wild donkey I find very humorous. Yeah, burros, as they like to call them Is over right? there. Burro. Yeah, burro. burro. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. plenty in Australia, And we've got plenty Shane. of wild donkeys in northern Australia, by yeah, the way. Yeah, that's Lots true. of them. Yeah, look yeah. for them. Um, yeah, and, the, you know, camels, again, are controversial. <laughs> um, you could argue, you mentioned diprotodons before. We yeah. used to have, yeah. you know, megafauna. So, diprotodon was a, basically a wombat the size of a Volkswagen. Yeah, huge. And we had huge kangaroos and all these other amazing megafauna. They're all gone about 50,000 years or so ago. A lot of them disappeared, probably as a result of maybe um, overhunting and maybe some climate change as well. Yeah. Probably a combination, combination of factors. Of yeah. um, it's hotly debated in the literature mm-hmm. all the time. Um, but people can, people have argued, well, camels might be fulfilling a similar role. But, of course, camels also have impacts. They drink waterholes literally mm. dry. Mm, so yeah. you've got thousands of camels come into a waterhole. They'll drink it all up. And then you think, well, what happens to the other animals that need that water? Mm. So it's just not that simple. Now, another really fascinating study that um, has been recently discussed, which was in science, has looked at the impact of a tsunami that occurred in Japan in 2011. Yep. So I'm sure some of you know about this massive guy that's out in the middle of the Pacific that's just full of junk, right? So get this. So 289 species have found their way from Japan to the US via junk, via that guy. <laughs> so what happened was this society happened. All this junk from Japan ended up in the water. Mm. All these marine organisms, so crustaceans, mollusks, anemones, small fish, mm. have latched onto these structures because in the open ocean there's not much going on in terms of you know something Stuff that you can hold on to, yeah. so you can yeah, be yeah, safe yeah. from pred- predators, yeah. etc. Yeah. They've hung on, and then the guy moves in a clockwise direction. And then periodically shed stuff off Next onto off the, North America. Pretty much. And so mm. sheds off these organisms and it's doing that and this is what's happening. So they're reporting this thing and they're reporting the fact that with climate change impacts, we're expecting more extreme storms, but we've also got huge amounts of coastal development and infrastructure at the same time. So we may actually expect more of these events. Now, mm. biological evasion, um, another really kind of key theme of it is what we call sleeper species. And that is where you might have a species that gets introduced to, an, to a new area, doesn't really do very much for a long time. So it just kind of sits there. You may have not even detect it. But then at some point, the environmental conditions yeah. might change yeah. and then bang, they're everywhere. And before you know it, you've got all these impacts. And it happens in the marine world, you know, quite regularly and also in terrestrial systems as well. So this study is quite fascinating in kind of trying to understand what the problems with that could be um, and what we could do about it. So, so that's, that's just, essentially a mobile reef you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. just massive, you know, um, you know, bits of plastic, fibreglass, yeah. you know, metal and so forth just kind of just drifting around and all these things have latched onto it. Yeah, and it then found their way yeah. right across the Pacific, which is just it's kind of amazing when you think about mm. it. Mm. So, that, But that must be, to some extent, you must be able to model this because you know the kinds of crap and where it's going to come from. Yep. You know the frequency of significant events that may yep. increase that. You know the direction it moves in and where it goes. You know the kinds of species, you know, yep. ecologically they're going to be in there. You know where they're going to end up. Yeah. So presumably you can go, yep, in 20 years we're going to have a whole lot of, I don't know, 
green-lipped abalone in Queensland going yeah. nuts. <laughs> so, so what we don't know, though, and this is what ecology is all about, is what happens when you change something. So yeah, if you yeah. put a new species in or take <coughs> one out or, or, or you know, a combination yes. of those, how does the system change? And so this is where it gets really, really interesting. And another thing with you know, introducing species and sort of, I guess, in some ways advocating for leaving introduced species there is there's a concern, again, in the, in the biological world that we'll get this thing called um, biotic homogenization, which is essentially that no matter where you go in the world, the species will look pretty similar because essentially you'll have these really competitive species being favoured yes. and you'll lose a lot of diversity. And so you'll have sparrows everywhere and you'll have yep. pigeons everywhere yep. and you'll have red foxes everywhere and things that just do really well in a range of conditions, mm. you'll have them everywhere. So that's a genuine concern that conservation biologists have now again that's balancing on this idea of rewilding that i mentioned right at the start where we've lost these big animals with all other animals that mm. have really important <clears throat> roles can we just do a new for old swap so <laughs> don't have to protodons but we'll go with camels instead can I, can I ask you a question on that idea though of those species doing really well and being problematic i mean if, if that was you know and may, maybe this is the wrong statement but if that was a real issue why hasn't it already happened naturally over the last million years? Like, why have we got such a diversity of species when we know that some of them don't do, you know, are really quite specific to areas and so forth, and they're a, a hard, you know, harder to keep alive? If if there'd really been such a massive advantage on just a small number of species, why didn't they wipe everything out, you know, long ago? Like, what? How how is it that all the other species have thrived and there's been yeah. so much diversity? Yeah. Well, disturbance is another important fact we haven't talked mm. about. So, you know, you'll have a fire, you'll have a, a cyclone or something, right. you know. And so you might have a particular tree species that are quite competitive, yep. but all of a sudden they get knocked over by a cyclone and other species will take off because right. environmental conditions change. Yep. So I guess you can't just look at the species also, themselves. You have also to look you, at the environment. And yeah, that concept of sleeper species is, is not that far removed from niche species. So yeah. you know, I've yeah. this tiny little niche yeah. that really no one else cares about. But if that niche increases because of whatever changing mm. environment, then suddenly I'm not a niche species. I'm a, I'm a I'm big a player. Big impact. Yeah. I'm a player. I'm a player. <laughs> I'm going to build something. So I have, to, I have to finish with this last other really interesting study, which again, I think, talks about the concern of accepting introduced species. So in America, Burmese pythons in the Florida Everglades. Mm. So America is amazing for the number of invasive species it has. And you can... You can see why, because you go to their pet shops and you can get pretty much yeah, anything. anything. And so <laughs> people have let go Burmese pythons. And we're talking big snakes yeah, yeah, here, right? Yeah. And so what these snakes have been doing is eating all the large mammals <laughs> and, and, and alligators <laughs> as well. So they've completely <laughs> yeah. changed the ecology of this system. And what scientists have found out is that by doing this, it's actually increased the transmission of a um, uh, mosquito-borne virus in this region. So previously... Um, uh, this mosquito was feeding on larger species, so things like deer and raccoons and mm. so forth. A lot of those have completely, not completely disappeared, but diminished dramatically because they've all been eaten by Burmese pythons. And now the mosquitoes are feeding, I think it was 400% more on these uh, rodent species, which are a known vector for this mosquito. Mm. So, so now by having an introduced species, you've changed the ecology and you've actually increased the, um, the, the, the risk factor essentially of this um, mosquito-borne virus for wow. humans. So, again, think, well, the idea of having different species fulfilling a role is nice, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what if this and what if that? And that's. But, mm. I mean, it seems to me as though uh, the way I've always viewed this is that nature always tries to find points of balance. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so the issue is when, when we make too many changes too quickly, those points of balance are never reached or, or you know, a lot of them actually would never actually be reached because before you get to the next point of balance, 
you've made another change and you've made another change. And so yep. it's very hard to work out what's going on yeah. because you've never actually found equilibrium yep. again. And so yeah. if we were to, you know, forgetting all the which species deserves to be there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, really I think what we should be looking at is respecting points of equilibrium and saying, okay, we're not going to make any more changes for a while mm. so we can find where that equilibrium point is and then look at what species are doing. Well. How would you recognise it was an equilibrium yeah, point, yeah. though? And also well, <laughs> rapid, rapid population changes in given species. I mean, when that starts to slow up, presumably mm. you'd say, okay, well, it's reaching that point where things are balanced yeah, out yeah. and everything's the, the I mean, food cycle's working. Yeah, yeah. The other challenge is just, you know, humans have a mismatch with, you know, time time scales, right? Yeah. So we think, yeah, yeah. we think 100 time scales, let's talk geological time yeah, scales. So yeah. it's, it's what world do you want? Like, do you want megafauna, no. you know, the 40,000 yeah. years ago? Or are you quite happy to have horses and camels in Australia right now? It's, it's a personal choice in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so, but yeah, there's mm. a mismatch between our time scales oh. and geological ones. So. Show, show me a person who doesn't want a, a, a car-sized wombat. Come yeah. on. I'm raising my hand. Yeah, yeah I'm raising yeah, my hand. I mean, that would be just, just, you know, one just wanders in your backyard yeah. randomly. I mean, yeah. that would it be cool stuff. It sits on your house. Yeah. It sits, sits on your car. <laughs> Some challenges for your veggie patch, mate. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just love it, you know, those big red kangaroos. I want Shane to have one. Plenty yeah. of fertiliser, though. Yeah, yeah. Shane, Plenty you can let us know. Yeah, so don't bring back... Uh, any of the other, you know, the prehistoric animals. I won't bring, bring back, back Megalania, yeah. the five metre long goanna thing, like a crocodile on land, essentially. I'm not bringing that back. I'm okay with that if I can ride this wombat. What about yeah. Thylacoleo? Which one's that? Really, Marsupial really, lion. really big lion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Gee, they were bigger and better back then, weren't they? Yeah, we need <laughs> the TARDIS. <laughs> we need the TARDIS. Back in the good old days. <laughs> the good old days. Dr. Ewan, thanks so much for that. Such a, I mean, we could just talk about this for, for shows on end because I think it's, it's fascinating. And the fact that there's so much controversy in the field is interesting too. And, and, yep, and absolutely. You know, the field is trying to catch up um, yep. to rapid changes. And in fact, it probably never will because it's why we keep changing things. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, now, Dr. Jen, great to see you. You too. See, there's an ecologist in you after all, Shane. You oh, can't look, try to you pretend know, you're a physicist, but we know the yeah, truth. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you, can, you can enjoy all parts of the universe, I find. And the True. natural world's fascinating. It doesn't matter which part you're looking at. I just happen to be crap at ecology. So that's why. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> well, no, I just I don't know what I'm doing. Um, never liked biology when I was younger, but love it now. So it's amazing who teaches you. Mm. Absolutely. That's a big effect. True, true. So you guys have been teaching me a lot. Uh, speaking of uh, 100... Oh, no, sorry, I was going to say... Um, you know, uh, hippos? Chris KP, good to see you. Uh, my pleasure, Aaron. Two words, mate. <laughs> Cocaine hippos. Cocaine hippos. Yeah, smoking cigars. Folks, thanks for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. We're going to hand over to the team from Eat It. We will have more science for you again next week. We've got a very special show next week. So tune in. Until then, have a great Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.